Today's scripture comes from Ephesians 4:25-32. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out from your mouths, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Teo. Hey, friends. Again, uh, I'm Pastor John Jay. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are going to talk today about anger. Yeah. Uh, we're now three weeks in to a set of teachings on sin, and last week we talked about lust, so if you were waiting, wanting to avoid that one, you're in the clear, you can come for the rest of the sermons moving forward. We talked about pride, and then lust, and then anger. A lot of these sort of link together in some really compelling ways, so you'll likely, if you were with us last week, see the ways that those connect. Also today, uh, it's a little bit different and special. I'm super excited because I'm going to share uh, some time with my really good friend, kind of the second half of our teaching. So I'm going to teach for about 20 minutes, and then for about 20 minutes, Kurt is going to join me. He is a pastor in North Carolina. I'll tell you a little bit more about him when he jumps up on the stage. Uh, okay. Anger is one of the vices, one of the, the sins that I'm like really into. It's one of my favorites. And I know that that's not a good thing, but it's true. And maybe that you're that way too. I'm like, I'm predisposed to it. I won't tell you all the things that have every week whenever I get ready to preach. Whatever it is that I'm studying, I find myself like deeply entangled with and wrestling with. And so I've tried not to get on the interstate for the last week, for instance, because that's just one of those places. Did I tell you? I won't tell you that story. I'll tell you the story later about when I was in a parking lot yelling with somebody and then completely shamed and drove off after it was done. That's a different conversation. I do have a different confession I want to make this morning, though. Um, I, If you've spent any time here, you'll know that I am not just ambivalent, but openly hostile to the ways that our like digital lives are forming us. So at least once or twice a month, I'll go on some kind of rant about social media or Facebook or Twitter or whatever the case may be, online personas and posturing and all of that. Uh, and if you want to talk about it, I will buy you lunch and then you can, the price for lunch is that I can rant with you for an hour about this. <clears throat> And sometimes it makes me feel really good to be so holier than thou about this issue. Like, I don't have a Facebook account, guys. And I want you to know that so you understand just how holy your pastor is. Uh, I had to get rid of my Facebook account. I will say Kurt never had one. So, uh, but here's the thing. 
apparently you can still get online and check out social media if you don't have social media. So one of my vices is just sort of falling into an anger pit where I'll get on Twitter and I'll be like, what's the news? And then you do this until you get really worked up and then you get worked up and it feels good. It feels like you just had a, like a bowl of really warm, creamy soup. And so then you keep going and going and you think, I can't wait to tell Corey how mad I am about A, B or C and Ooh, if only I had power in the world to change this thing, but my power in the world to change this thing is this motion over and over again. It's just the way things are for me. Like, the news is, is terrible all the time by design. And the reason that I think I'm so hostile to and not just ambivalent about social media is I'm an, I have an addictive personality. I come from a family of addicts to alcoholism or drugs, uh, all kinds of, this just kind of weaves into my family's story. And so there are addictive hooks inside of digital media that just grab me especially. Uh, again, I'll pivot to Kurt, not the same makeup at all, like sort of polar opposite to me. He's got a watch that he wears a lot of the time that's got GPS and also gets text messages. If I had that watch, I would be useless to you for the rest of my life. Because it's just like, it's not a thing that I can do. Um, not a problem for Kurt, right? You've like had eye contact with us all week long. I had, I had that watch, I couldn't maintain eye contact. Um, because here's the thing about anger. And from what I just described to you, that's the low-grade simmering anger that, that you can sometimes feed and nurture. Uh, it is addictive. But my addiction isn't to like deep, real, true anger it's often to this cheap stuff the outrage bubble and what happens to me is i find that i'm angry about a lot of real things things that are worth getting angry about but often feel powerless to do anything about it and so i get really really worked up about things that have nothing to do with my true woundedness you know what i mean it's the traffic outburst. Like, you're not actually mad at that thing as much as you just carry around a resting state of rage. Uh, it's, it's difficult. This is how it feels for me a lot of the time. They did this study um, to figure out how different messages travel in digital spaces spaces, right? How viral something can be, if you know that language. And uh, this group looked at these different social media platforms and they said, okay, how fast does like joy travel and how far does joy travel? You post an article about a puppy that makes best friends with a pigeon. Corey showed me that today and they're like snuggling. That's super fun. That made me feel great. That goes a, li a little bit, right? Corey to me. Uh, sadness or disgust. Turns out anger is a hundred percent the most contagious of the emotions and it's the most shareable of the things that happen online so what online becomes if you are incentivized to get everybody to stay at like paying attention to your website is you just get them cranked up all the time this is why reading the news or turning on your radio even if it's npr with like the softest and sweetest publicly funded voice you could find that you're still anxious or mad all the time. It's by design. There is one emotive space that is more contagious than anger, but it's so hard to access that we don't see it as much, and that's awe, A-W-E. Sense of 
right? But you often experience awe when you get out of yourself and into the world. But anger is the one that we see most of the time. The fancy word for anger in the text is wrath. And I want to work out some language with you for just a little bit in the ways that all of these things connect to each other. And then we're going to talk practically together when Kurt comes up and untangles everything I've tangled up for you. In this passage in Ephesians, there's a whole host of words that get used for anger. The first one that you heard is this word orgismo, uh, which comes from orge, which is just this sort of like rising up very, very strong and potentially destructive emotion. Uh, It almost always is condemned in the text because usually when humans carry around anger, we don't quite know what to do with it. The other word for anger is the word for wrath. It shows up toward the end of this text in verse 31, and it's this word. And this word should look somewhat familiar to you. It's the word thumos, and it has the language of heat in it. The ancients often thought about emotions as lodged in our bodies. There was not this separation between body and spirit. It was all the same thing because it is all the same thing. And so anger was often understood as like your nose sort of becoming inflamed, like a heat coming off of your face, that sort of breathing smoke out of your nostrils. That's how anger was understood. And anger, when it's carried in the divine, right, God's wrath, it has the potential to break out against humanity or against creation. So you can see that there's this kind of danger, this possibility at play in anger. And the word thumos catches that really well. The other word that comes out of thumos is from last week. It's the word lust. Epithumos. It means to have this kind of violent passion run through your body. That's the word epi, just sort of move through you. So lust is somehow related to anger, which somehow moves us often to violence. So just remind you of a couple of key stories that I think illustrate this really well. And partly too, because the Bible is so very practical. I think sometimes we approach the text and we think, like, this is an old book. What does this old book have to say to us today in Pasadena? We don't deal with these same kind of things. But it really, it it names us in some really precise ways. So one of the things that the Bible talks about a lot, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, and then in a lot of the stories and the parables, is just family drama. Because, like, I can get angry at Twitter, but what is really difficult is processing the anger at those who are closest to me, right? Because they can wound the deepest, can be the most disappointed with. And this is not foreign to the text. In fact, it's like the very beginning of the story. So you remember in Genesis, you've got uh, Adam and Eve, right? They're like primal humans. And then in Genesis 4, they have two kids that get talked about. And do you all remember their names? Cain and Abel, right? And Cain, the text says works the fields and Abel works the flocks and they go to bring a sacrifice to God the story says and God is said to see or gaze at or look at Abel's sacrifice just like notices it and doesn't notice Cain's and then that story takes off into this murderous direction sort of the first big blow up story of anger It says so in the text. The word for anger in the Hebrew language is that same language of like the heat of the face, of this sort of eruption that's happening inside of Cain. And God says like, settle down. 
you don't get control of this, it's going to have control of you. It's desire, it's lust is for you, and it will devour you. And we know how that story goes. Cain kills Abel in a field, and then is exiled. Then the next story after that is the story of this other person named Lamech. And, and he's like a super cane in that he says, listen, if you even like stub my toe, I'm going to ruin your family. He's that kind of guy. Uh, if Cain is avenged seven times, then, then I'm going to be avenged 77 times. So anger and violence start to hold hands and then they escalate and they roll until the whole world is full of violence, the text says. And we enter into the story of the flood. So that's like the first version of family drama. But Jesus tells another story of family drama, and it's the story of the two sons. You probably know it as the prodigal son story in Luke 15. And I will say that the prodigal son story in Luke 15 is telling a version of the Cain and Abel story. It's just telling it with an ending that is not yet decided. But do you remember the story? We talk about it quite often here. We've got two sons and a father. One of the sons comes to the father and says, I would like all of my inheritance, father, because I'm done with being part of this family. And the father hands this son half the inheritance, and off that son goes into a foreign land and spends it all on reckless living. And we kind of hear that story and we think, oh, yeah, like sometimes we take the goods from God and we squander them. And that's the point of the story. But there's this other part of the story, too which is that there's another son at home that's followed all of the rules. We would call this the Kurt in the story, the rule follower. I'm definitely the son who would squander, child. And so the, the older son really comes into play in the second part of the story. And the older son is actually the, the really the Cain version of humanity. Because when the younger son comes back and sort of falls down in false humility and begs to be let back into the family, and the father embraces him, and then kills the fatted calf, puts a robe on him, and basically says, you're home. Then the older son is cranked up. And it says, well, there's a party going on. The older son is out in a field, just like Cain was out in a field. And the text says that he is angry. So the father goes out to plead with the son, and says this beautiful line in scripture that I, we always should be holding on to. Uh, the father says to the son, God says to us all the time, God is saying to us, you've always been with me. Everything that I have is yours. And the story ends on like a cliffhanger, right? Because we know what happens with Cain and Abel, but we don't yet know what's going to happen in this story because we're actually living in this story where our anger unchecked or misunderstood could lead toward a certain kind of violence or death. In the early part of Ephesians 4, we were already given what I would say is kind of a hint for how we're supposed to carry anger. How do we deal with the anger we hold inside of us? Because um, in the, le- yeah, we know each other, we trust each other. In the last week, who has had some version of anger, wrath, uh, frustration, rage. Let's just show of hands a moment of confession. Look at all these saints and sinners alike. Yeah, absolutely. And if I told you that anger itself is the sin, all I've told you is that one of your like primal states is just always wrong, always screwed up, never feel. Right? And that's actually the bad version of what we hear about with sin is sin is over feeling. So just stop feeling, push it down, suppress it. 
the way the language for patience is this word and it has anger sort of embedded in it it's macrothumos and it doesn't mean to not be angry it means to set your anger like way far away from you in time and in space so that you have enough time to understand it before you react to it it's like a really practical way to understand how to live with this heavy emotion Patience is just to set your anger away from you for a moment. You'll get to it, but just give it a second. So that when you get there, you've been able to be a little bit more thoughtful with this anger. Because, and this is what the two stories, the family struggle shows us. Anger is often not the primary emotion we're carrying. It's not the wrath of family. It's it's often the, the pain of family that gets us really jacked up. Now, here's the thing about pain. We have a very hard time holding pain and grief and sadness inside of us. It's like a really hard emotion. And it's just normal for us to try to move that emotion into something that we can control, something that we can leverage or weaponize, and anger is often the place that grief moves. So in one version of the Cain and Abel story, It doesn't say, there's a a Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And it doesn't translate the word anger the same. It doesn't use orgizmo. It doesn't use the word thumos. It uses a word that means sad. Turns out Cain isn't simply angry. Cain is brokenhearted. Because what does it feel like when you feel ignored by God? Or by a parent? Or by a loved one? Or by society? When you don't feel seen and noticed, that is, that's a painful space to be. And Cain is in pain. When God responds to Cain and says, like, why are you so angry? It says, why are you so very sad? So very grieved. Because that's what happens. The world wounds us. And then we have to figure out what to do with the wound. Nurturing that wound in some ways can bring it toward healing. Carrying that wound into community and showing folks, like we've talked about, this is where it hurts. Can you see where it hurts is is an invitation into healing. But sometimes the wound turns us in on ourselves and we start to protect it and and hold it over in the corner and say, like, "This this is my little thing over here. And you did it to me last time, so nobody gets to see this part of me that's wounded. And and you pet it and you, you kind of, like, feed it. And over time, it grows into something that will overtake you. Because anger has that potential. It can shift from signal to poison quickly. And so this is what I want to say here about how to handle, hold anger. This is what we see in the text. It's what we see with Jesus. Anger is not a bad emotion. In fact, it tells us a lot about what's happening to us. It's a little bit like pain. Like when you feel pain, that's, an, that's a good response to somebody kicking you in the foot. It tells you not to put your foot there or not to hang out with that person anymore if they did it on purpose. Right? Anger is the same kind of thing. It directs our attention. It says there's something that is not right here. And if we're not sure why we're angry, then it, patience gives us some time to understand, to attend to, to deepen and reflect upon. I'm not really mad about traffic, am I? I'm really mad that I haven't heard from my brother or sister in a month. 
really mad that this person I loved is no longer with me. I'm real, I'm not mad at this thing, I'm mad at that thing. And then all of a sudden you get closer to the wound and you can, you can start to lift it up and, and hold it with some tenderness. Anger though, nurtured, can become dangerous because anger is really bad at telling us what to do next. It might tell us with good precision what is wrong, but it is not the thing that will tell us how to act on that wrongness. We see this a lot. Uh, and actually, I'm going to pick on Zach, who's here with us, because I think you, the work that Zach does with LA Voice is often informed by pain and anger at injustice. And one of the things that I love if, to get to know Zach, and you should if you don't, is that uh, I would say that the seabed of your own action in the world is not, in fact, anger, but love. Uh, who's it, Cornell West? Like, justice is what love looks like in public. Um, so anger informs. Here is where people are being hurt. But it is love for those people that informs the way that we act. And this is where my own confession comes into play. When I start to look out in the world at all of the villains, at all of the evil, and all of the things that are wrong, I can't wait to enact wrathful justice and vengeance on the systems of this world. And if I had a button that could set things right, I would love to press it, but not as much because I love, but more because I hate with good precision. And this, this is where Jesus comes to heal. The religious leaders are angry, rightfully so. They are tending to a people who are humiliated time and again by the powers that be. But Jesus comes and takes all of that anger and oppression and directs it toward love and solidarity. And so part of what we have to ask ourselves is what do we do with this? There is one hint at the end. It's one last word I want to show you, and then Kurt's going to come up. It's this word right here, eusplankna. I love this word. That's why I wanted to show it to you. Eusplankna. It's at the end of Ephesians chapter 4. I'll read you the passage that it comes out of. It says at first, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice. And then this, be kind and tenderhearted. Forgiving just as Christ forgave. It's this word. You splankna is two words shoved together. You, which is the word for good, and splankna, which is the word for intestines or gut. You might have heard me talk about this word splanknizomai, which is what happens to Jesus when he sees people suffering. It says that he's compassionate, but really what it means is that his guts flip inside of him. The power of Jesus is his ability to feel in with creation as it hurts, but not to respond within that hurt out of vengeance, but instead with forgiveness. And Jesus gets mad, right? Jesus has a whip and throws tables over but does so from a place of openness and tenderheartedness, of usplankness. So that's maybe the last word I want to share with you. Brene Brown talks a lot about this, about how to live with vulnerability in a world that wounds us constantly. And she has this phrase she's borrowed uh, from Joan Halifax. Uh, she says that we are called to have strong backs. Right? Get angry whenever you are abused, whenever there is injustice. Strengthen up your convictions but then also to have soft fronts, that sort of good gut, tender-hearted. Because sometimes a sense of justice can close us off in armor 
But how do we stay open to the world's pain while also naming the wrongs that are happening all of the time? This is the work of anger. This is why it's a divine emotion. God gets angry, but anger is hard for us to hold. So I'm going to ask Kurt to come up and we're going to chat for a little bit. We've got three questions we're going to go over. Um, Three of them. When is anger just? When is anger dangerous? And how do you process your anger and not sin? Those are the three questions we're going to talk about for about 15 or 20 minutes together. Um, so, Kurt, as you're coming up, I'll just say a couple of things about who Kurt is so you know who this friend of mine is. Uh, grew up in Kentucky, uh, went to Georgetown College, right? Worked, was Norman Wersba there when you were at Georgetown? So one of the professors that was at Duke did uh, ecology and theology, uh, working off of Wendell Berry's tradition. Norman Wersba is one of Kurt's undergrads. Anyway, uh, we met each other, I think like the first day of class, the first day of some orientation thing and became really quick friends with Kurt and Jenny. Uh, we interned together at a church called the Gathering Church in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, and then Kurt at some point was heading off to PhD work. You had like a full PhD plan at, at Baylor University in Hebrew Bible, ended up doing AmeriCorps. No, uh, Habitat. Habitat for Humanity, then was a head pastor at a church in uh, Moorhead, Kentucky. Brilliant season there. And now is going to be uh, the next pastor at the church we serve together uh, called the Gathering Church because the founding pastor is getting ready to retire. So that's happening in like, what, April? The transfer? The end of April. Okay. Uh, and then married to Jenny, uh, who is a NICU nurse in the area. And Yes. Yeah, and so like we've got all these friends who've had babies. Often whenever Corey calls you back with something, she's called Jenny first. Like, is this right? Do I actually have to go get my flu shot? And Jenny's like, go get your flu shot. Okay, I'll go get my flu shot. Um, anything I would add to that? Tell us anything else you'd like to tell us about you. Two daughters, seven-year-old Eloise, Mary Eloise, and then a five-year-old Olive Ruth Lowndes. Awesome. Okay, so our first question is when is anger just? And I want Kurt to respond to this partly because his background specialty is Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament. And so immediately when we started talking about this stuff. He's like, well, what about the wrath of God? Well, what about the sort of what is what do the prophets say about this? What, what does that tradition say? And so take us just a little bit into when is anger just and how do we know it as such? In four minutes or less. Yeah, yeah. So a a brief word about my background, too. I grew up in eastern Kentucky in a super conservative, fundamentalist background. And so when we talked about God's wrath, it was heard from someone who John Jay described anger in the Hebrew Bible as this very uh, facial, emotive expression, red face. So we got that from our pastor from the pulpit. And so you heard about God's wrath from a wrathful person, and it was directed at you. And in that moment, you would think like, you want me to come down and say a prayer? Well, I'll do that. I'll do anything you want me to do at this moment to like escape the wrath of God. Um, it's that like sinners in the hands of an angry God gripping onto the pew. We're all scared about what God might do to us personally, which is not exactly how God's wrath, God's anger shows up in scripture at all. Like, yes, it's a very powerful force. It's like God's holiness that you have to watch out for. But honestly, God's wrath in scripture shows up a whole lot more around oppression, 
around slavery, around injustice, around mistreatment of the poor, around religious hypocrisy. That's when God gets really mad when you do all the right things in church or in the temple or in a synagogue, but you don't do those things in your life so that there's a mismatch. There's no integrity behind the way that you're living. And so this idea of God's wrath is something that's very personal to me that is going to land on me because I messed up doesn't exactly jive with how we see it in scripture because God's wrath is different from our anger. We we tend to make God in our image, which means God looks like me instead of being made in God's image, which means that we reflect back what, who God is. And so God being someone who is slow to anger where we're quick to anger and this idea that that God's righteous wrath, this righteous anger that we talk about, which is so rarely reflected probably in our lives, but in God's life, it's around how you're treating your brother or your sister or the foreigner or the refugee in your midst. Mm. That's nice. That's a little bit. That's just a little bit. That's huh? a little bit about when you're <laughs> supposed to be angry. Uh, okay, I'll ask the question and to follow up with that is. Um, are there instances of just anger that we see uh, expressed right now in our culture that we should acknowledge, lean into, invite that voice? And this is the difficulty sometimes of preaching from the positions you and I have is I think we've both carried a certain amount of, of privilege and possibility in our lives, right? And we don't all, at least I don't always know where it hurts, um, but and I have a couple of examples. But would you share? So I, there are. So my context is in uh, Durham, North Carolina. So we're in the South, and um, I'll just say, like, look around this room. This is not what our churches look like, <laughs> right? They're segregated, mm-hmm. not like by edict or law, but by tradition of pain and unjust behaviors from folks with power and privilege who look like me. And it continues into the future and into the present, but it it looks different and it sounds different than it did maybe 60 years ago or 150 years ago. But I was sitting at a table with other clergy recently, um, some black and some brown clergy members who were talking about uh, what was happening in in a public housing unit in, in our community. And how the like uh, mismanagement of funds had led to this just total disrepair. And there was carbon monoxide poisoning. And two uh, children were killed. And they're still waiting to hear back. Like, was that due to their failure to care for these places properly or not? But even if they didn't die from that, which it, it looks like they did, like... The state of that housing unit is something that should cause us to be angry. All of us to be angry. I don't live there because I grew up with wealth and was able to purchase a house in a different part of town. And so I don't live in that spot. But that's the kind of thing I think where we can say, oh, let's look at this. And that's a local thing. And I don't know what that is here in Pasadena because I'm not here. That's your job to figure out what that is. And it may look like listening to your neighbors who don't look or sound or smell or talk like you do. Yeah, I, I was reminded in this, similar to you, um, some of us know Andre Henry. He's a, a theologian and activist in the area, and he's become a friend of mine working at Fuller. And he often gets called an angry black man because he's working for racial justice in our city and, and in the culture. Uh, and 
I only know Andre through face-to-face uh, -face meetings. I don't. He is like a very active uh, writing life online. He's got a podcast and all those things are really brilliant. But I've tried to figure out how to know him as close as I can to him, him. And so we often get together for lunch or, or coffee about once a month. And the thing that strikes me is almost every time we meet, he cries. Mm. Because that sense of anger is grounded in deep pain that he is like well connected to. And I asked him before I came if I could just share that little bit about him. Um, there was a story I was reading. There's a book I would recommend to you uh, called The Dance of Anger. It's a pretty, uh, it's been around for a bit of time, maybe 30 years or so. And it's actually written uh, for women who were never given permission to be angry in public, right? Like sugar and spice and everything nice, that's really just for ladies, not for guys. That's the way that it was construed. So it talks about how anger is a really important signal, especially for women or for those whose voice has been denied in public. And I do think we're at a time right now where they're just voices that are done being denied a public airing. And so they're going to say, like, it, it hurts, it, it, it's painful, it's wounding, and I'm mad. And to shut that down is a dangerous thing to do. Um, Andre's ability to hold pain and anger at the same time, I think, textures his work in a way that makes it redemptive and not, uh, not simply just heavy for his, for heaviness sake. Um, by the way, if you go online and read Andre's work, I recommend that. I posted a while back his MLK sermon at All Saints Church, and it was like really powerful. Um, so I just would reference that for you. Um, okay. We got to move to the next one. Uh, sure. We could talk about justice for a while. Let me just say one more time. Uh, anger is not... Mm, some people can carry anger for shorter amounts of time because their ability to affect the world is heightened. And so like, if you have a ton of power, nurturing anger is maybe much more dangerous for the world than somebody who has less access to power or vengeance or authority. Uh, and so, like, if you're a boss, for instance, like, really work on your anger. Like, I'm the head of staff here. If I get angry in a way that is destructive, it's a big deal. Uh, and you just need to know that about yourself. Know who you have access to. If you're a parent, right, like, don't. Be careful with your anger around your children. Um, because there is a power differential there that is hard to overcome. Um, and wounds that can perpetuate anger cycles. Okay, let's go to the next one real quick, which is the, the question of when is anger dangerous? Um, and this one, I think, becomes a bit more exposing for us, right? Because the question is like, what anger do you carry, Kurt, or am I carrying that is poison and not uh, generative anger? Right. And I'm going to sit down for the rest of the time. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he said coward. <laughs> uh, yeah, so do you, do you have an idea about this? You can borrow some of so, mine if you want. Yeah, I would say that um, th this is different. So he talked about how we're so very different um, in everything. Um, but one of the main things is that my anger is not the, the um, if you saw Inside Out, the anger character who like combusts out of his head. Or like, you've, I don't know, maybe you've experienced it with John Jay ever. Um, but my anger is the like slow burn the kind of like the like Corey and I were talking about it and it could be the embers um, in, after a fire, which can burn your house down just as bad as like a raging fire. Uh, and But it's like sneaky because you might die from smoke inhalation before the fire actually gets you. And so when is anger dangerous? There, there are like tons of times when anger is dangerous. But one, the main one I would say is when you're not aware of it. Mm -hmm. 
That's really scary. When you're acting and living from a place of anger and you don't even know that you're doing it. Um, that to me seems like you're primed to, to hurt someone. Um, and then I think if you're not aware of your power, that's another time when it's dangerous to be angry because you might not be aware of how your words, your actions, uh, your money could be causing damage, harm, taking life from someone uh, because you're not aware of what your anger does outside of what it does in your own mind. So the place where this works on me, and uh, I want you to share, Kurt, in response to this, some of what you said about how God's anger is invitation to relationships. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Uh, anger, when it's sinful, I think it works in the same way that sin works in all situations, which is it cuts us off from relationship. Uh, and this is, I think, the space where anger has the most destructive potential because the source of that anger, your brother or your sister, if untended or, or not understood, uh, enacting that anger will just completely sever the relationship. Like the tragedy of Cain and Abel is that Cain loses the person he could have spoken to to process his anger with his brother. The, this like tragedy of the older son is that he doesn't know how to speak with his father or his brother anymore. The anger is the thing that severs. And so when my anger becomes, like I mentioned, that thing that I hoard and hold and nurture, it is always alone. I may act my anger out like an outburst at other people, but it is definitely a private experience, which is why I think online is so like tempting for this kind of destructive anger, because it's just you and your ideas and your screen and no other people around to sort of texture that anger to ask a question of where it's coming from the gift of being in a family with a spouse or in a deep friendship is that when i am angry people who know me can ask deeper questions and and you've done that a lot of times often when i'm in crisis i'll call you uh cory i happen to live with somebody who's got a lot of emotional intelligence and so um when my anger isolates me off in a corner uh a lot of you sometimes when you write prayer requests you'll you'll mention this is the anger i'm carrying and I feel that as a reaching out for relationship, right? It's a bold and strong move. And I want to commend you for that. Um, don't stop. Your anger will, will make you think that you're an island. And that's the temptation I think that we have to move past. Uh, so how does God do that? Yeah, so what he's alluding to is generally, um, this comes from Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, by the way, a uh, Hebrew Bible scholar, a Holocaust survivor. He talks about how in the prophets, God's anger, God's wrath as it's directed is actually an invitation for the prophet to step in, to bridge the gap, to breach that gap between God and God's people and to remain in the relationship. So God will say to Moses, for instance, or to one of the prophets, like, Oh, leave me alone so I can just stew in my anger and destroy my people. But what God's really doing is like, leave me alone. Come over here. Notice this. I'm really angry at this, at this treatment of the poor in your midst. So come do something about this with me. Don't abandon the relationship. Let's not isolate ourselves because anger does that really well. So God's saying like, move into this with me. Let's investigate and interrogate where, where is this anger coming from? What's it directed to? And, and I think like we can see this in our individual lives too. Um, I think about like, uh, Jenny 
we talked about how she's a NICU nurse. Well, we also um, experience infertility for a while, which is something else that the church generally avoids, like anger. Um, and that can be a very isolating experience because in that kind of anger, you're not sure where to direct your anger to. Like, am I, am I should I be angry at her uterus? No. Or am I ang- No, right, exactly. I should be angry at the doctors who use words like her uterus is incompatible with life, which makes me want to like, you know, turn the tables over. Um, but where do I point my anger when it's something like that? Or when my dad, my, my dad passed away this past June from esophageal cancer. And I remember sitting on my kitchen floor one night and this is what anger does is it is it isolates. Right. And I was so angry and you're like white knuckle grip and I'm on the ground and it's like tears of rage because it's grief and anger mixed. But who, who am I supposed to be angry at? What what do I do with my anger? Who's with me in that anger? Where do I direct it? Or how do I get rid of it? What do I do with it? And the only way is if I open up and invite someone else into that anger with me. The same with fertility. If I talk about it and I bring someone else into it and I say, I need your help working through some of this. Yeah, yeah. Psalm 137, like the hardest psalm in the Bible, right? Uh, We sat by the rivers in Babylon, hung up our harps and wept. They asked for a song. Uh, from our homeland, sing as one of your songs, like how can we sing uh, a song of home? Uh, and then the text keeps moving forward, and it's got like one of the hardest last verses. Uh, do you have it? Yeah, you want to just read Yeah, it? Just, just grab that last verse, because it starts with pain, right? Exile, pain, loss, and then the anger holds in the text. I think sometimes we read the Bible and we're like... This right here is not a thing I agree with. Good. But these people are honest in the way that they cry out just like we are. So what's the last? Last two verses. Yeah. Oh, daughter Babylon, you devastator. So their, their anger's directed at Babylon. Happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. So that's the revenge move. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. Yeah. So there's the violence. Um... You don't later, hear that psalm in, in church. Late, no, you don't. And later, you know, there, there are other prophets that say, like, pray for the good of the city in which you are living. Um, okay, so then the last question. I think we've, we've talked a little bit about when is anger dangerous. Um, how do you process anger and not sin? What do you do with it? Uh, I'll let you offer the first word, and then I'll, I'll have you sit, and I'll try to tie us up here. So I think we, we just showed like we just heard we were just shown how to do that by the psalmist the very first move you do with your anger is you bring it to god like that psalm is directed to god god can handle your anger like it's okay i promise god has what it takes to deal with whatever it is that you're dealing with and so you bring it to god and that's and you you release that anger to god and you show up and you say here's what's going on This is what we're angry about. This is what it feels like should be done here. But I'm going to leave this and I'm going to hand this over to you because it belongs to you to deal with. Which is where, you know, these situations where God says, vengeance is mine. In other words, it's not your place to take revenge. You let me take care of justice because I can see big picture what's happening with the world. And, And this is where questions are really helpful. So you investigate your anger. You say, why am I angry? Is this worth being angry over? And if not, what is it about it that like I want to be so angry and how can I release it and not pursue revenge? Um, 
But how do I also not suppress it or ignore it so that it just like bubbles up in unhealthy ways? Um, how can I release it like in a just way? How does it move me to action in helpful ways if it's something that I should be angry about? So that would be like the oppression that we see or the mistreatment of the poor, uh, the things that God gets angry about. So how do you process it? It's like we look to, to what makes God angry and we think, all right, does mine align with that? And you can't do that on your own because, again, it isolates us because we'll tell ourselves some lies and be like, oh, this is some righteous anger right here. I, I'm in the good. God's on my side. It's like the Jonah anger where mm-hmm. God's going to punish the Assyrians. And Jonah just wants a front row seat to the action. Jonah doesn't actually want the Assyrians to convert. And that's why he's so upset when like even their livestock repents and turns back to God. And he's like, oh, you're supposed to like strike them down from heaven. Um, so I think, and we look at how Jesus gets angry. Uh-huh. Like, So how do we process our anger? Jesus gets angry and it's always with grief. Uh-huh. So you think about when Lazarus uh, dies, Jesus is, Jesus weeps, but he's also really angry at death, capital D, death. And then when Jesus is upset with the uh, religious leaders because they don't want him to heal the man with the withered hand and he's angered at their hardness of heart, but he's also grieving at their lack of compassion. Yep. The word for grief is the same word that gets used for Cain's anger. Yeah. In the Old Testament. Um, Can we say thank you to Kurt? I'll take that. Uh, and I, I, I will just say I'm really grateful to have uh, Kurt and Jenny in our lives. And I hope you have folks like this. Um, because I don't understand my own anger. Like, I'm just not that self-aware all the time. And the only way that I know how to metabolize it is to carry it forth to people that I trust. Which also I need to say this. If your anger is residing, it's sort of generated out of a place of injustice and you're not safe, right? Like, abuse in a marriage um, a workspace that is, is not just unhealthy, but like degrading, uh, you may need to remove yourself from that situation before you can fully understand the way to respond with that anger. Uh, angry and not sin does not mean, uh, angry and allow yourself to be abused over and over again. And I do think that we often hear that message inside of church, um, that you're not allowed to sort of create some safety and boundaries. Sometimes that's necessary. Uh, Empathy is a word that has at various times meant more or less to our culture, but really what it means is to be able to feel in with people and to sense where their pain is. Um, Right now, with everything happening in our culture that is so polarizing, election cycles, uh, huge income inequalities, uh, racist narratives that have now like blown up into the open in ways that have been really necessary, like there's just so much pain. Uh, Krista Tippett in her book, Becoming Wise, talks about how the stories of healing that we've been telling ourselves are incomplete at best. And living in a world in which the healing stories are incomplete or haven't even begun to be spoken yet is hard. And we're not really that good at public confession. And so the anger is not answered with an apology often. Uh, But it is our work, I think, to understand where the anger is emanating from in our world and to move toward that pain. And part of moving toward that pain, I think, is to understand that underneath the anger is grief and sadness, like Kurt said. Uh, A lot of you are carrying sadnesses that you've had for quite a long time. And I don't know how long your heart will break in that way. 
my hope and always my encouragement for you is that in that sadness, in those heavier emotions, you move toward one another and by moving toward one another, move toward God, right? The face of Christ in your neighbor. Uh, People that you trust to be able to carry these heavy emotions with you. I think, Kurt, you said, like, the things I need as I'm moving back into the head pastor role is, like, a counselor, uh, a mentor, a clergy network, and a spiritual advisor. And, like, all of those, I think, are the same piece of people that I can trust to tell me what is true when I can't see what is true anymore. Anger can create a bit of a fog around us if we are not careful. Um, I offer myself as one of those listening partners for you. I have a great staff that we work with who also are those people. Uh, we're, it's okay. If you need to be angry at God by being angry at a pastor, I'm not going to take it personal. Like it's sometimes it's just the way that things are. Uh, Jesus in his anger, he does forgive, but he cries and he rages uh, and doesn't leave the world the way that he found it. Um, so I'm with you as you carry this one around. Anger is like, right, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so I do want us to hold this motion with some tentativeness, understanding that it has great power within it. Uh, God is mighty and strong to do the work. Uh, We have been empowered to love the world. So um, thank you all for listening to this one and for uh, being with us in this. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we're going to sing a little bit more together. God, in our anger, um, forgive us for when we've sinned. We've wronged neighbor and we've wronged ourselves, And we've lashed out or cut off. Help us to understand where our anger resides uh, so that we might settle in uh, to the grief that is deeper than the anger. And when we dig deep into that pain, may we discover that you are in pain in the same way for the world that isn't uh, set right. And then give us a clear sense of how we can uh, work for the healing of this world, starting with our own rage. Love is yours, and so that's what we lean into. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.